You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mikhail Kishnan, who has written a book uh, recently on Milan Ratislav Stefanik, uh, titled Milan Ratislav Stefanik, the Slovak national hero and co-founder of Czechoslovakia. Dr. Kishnan, thank you for joining me here today. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Excellent, excellent. So I I don't think I'm making any bad assumptions by saying that the history of Slovakia during this time is probably not well known to 90 plus percent of the people who listen to this podcast in English. So could you just give kind of a general introduction to the areas that would become Slovakia during this time, kind of before and during the First World War. Yes, I think your assumption is uh, is right. <laughs> That's also why I included a, in a short introduction to the Slovak history at the end of 19th century, at the beginning of 20th century, uh, to my to my book. It's, it's a short chapter, and uh, in this uh, in this chapter, or also during during my speech, I'm underlying the national point of view on Slovak history, simply because I'm. In the book I try to answer, I'm answering the question how someone became the national hero, in our case, the Slovak national hero. That's why is it, it is important to, to understand also uh, a little bit this uh, Slovak, uh, Slovak history. So Slovaks lived in the Kingdom of Hungary, what was part of, uh, of uh, uh, Habsburg monarchy. And uh, Slovaks lived in so-called Upper Hungary. Or Slovakia, and uh, well, they lived there since uh, 11th century. But with the rise of, uh, of nationalism in 19th century, they started to formulate uh, political demands. Uh, well, even Slovak national movement was divided between Protestants and Catholics. And uh, while Protestants thought that Slovaks were part of broader Czechoslovak nation. And they, they thought this under the influence of uh, the theory of Slavic unity that said that all Slavic people are one, na- one nation, and this one nation have four branches, uh, Yugoslav branch, or Irilic branch, and Russian branch, Polish branch, 
and Czechoslovak or Czechoslavic branch. And also they had for this uh, for this uh, belief they had their emotional reason because they used uh, one variant of che- of one form of Czech language as their liturgical language. On the other hand, Catholics thought that uh, Slovaks were an independent ethnic nation, and uh, well, Catholics uh, were in majority in Slovakia and still are. Still are. And this uh, this like two say these two movements, Protestant and Catholic one, were united by the codification of Slovak language in 1843 by one mythic figure of, of Slovak history. His name is Ludovic Tur. And uh, so, so they, started, uh, they started to cooperate closely. And of course, there was a, a revolution like everywhere in Europe in 1848-49. Slovaks formulated their political demands, but it was not very much, much successful. But another important date of Slovak history in this second half of 19th century is 1861, when Slovaks formulated their political demands in so-called Memorandum of the Slovak Nation in one small town in northern Slovakia. And uh, I would say the most important demand was the autonomy for Slovak uh, for a Slovak region or something like or they call it Slovak something like Slovak region. And this uh, this demand was the base of uh, was the basis of all Slovak demands until the beginning of the of the Great War. Another important event was uh, happened in 1867 with the Austro-Hungarian Compromise. Like until 1867, we talk about Habsburg monarchy, about Austri- Austria, but since then we are we are speaking about. Uh, about Austria-Hungary, and the, the monarchy was divided to the Hungarian part and to the Austrian part. And it is in this Hungarian part, where Slovaks lived, the Hungarian government started uh, politics of uh, Magyarization, so-called Magyarization, that meant cultural and, uh, and linguistic uh, assimilation of, uh, of non-Magyar nationalities, mainly Slovaks, Romanians, and Serbs. And in in the in the time, there was uh, only fifty percent of of people uh, of inhabitants of of Hungarian kingdom were Magyars. I mean, ethnical Magyars. So this strongly limited the the possibilities of Slovak politicians to maneuver. But of course, they published their their political periodicals, cultural associations. They were founded and. Uh, and so on and so forth. But from general point of view, I would say that uh, at the beginning or at the end of 19th century, at the beginning of 20th century, Slovaks uh, adopted three different strategies, like how to face this uh, this, this 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 problematic situation, this their their, their problematical uh, their problematic political situation. And the first strategy was so-called pro-Russian or pan-Slavic. So it was. Uh, its main um, pro, um, main uh, representatives were rather conservative, uh, conservative Slovak politicians, and they saw Russia as uh, well as the as the savior or of all other Slavic nations, because uh, Russia helped to establish uh, Serb, Serbia or independent Serbia or independent Bulgaria. But this was uh, rather um, naive vision because Russians have their their own um, their own interests. And they 
didn't really care about, about Slovaks. Another strategy was so-called Czechoslovak orientation. It was mainly by young uh, liberal generation, so-called Hlasisti, from the name of one periodical, its name was Hlas, the voice. And they said that Czechs and Slovaks were, were one ethnic nation, and uh, so they should, uh, they should uh, fight together to obtain kind of autonomy. It was also uh, advantages for Czechs, because uh, by joining Slovaks, uh, their, on their position, their power position within Austria-Hungary would have uh, become, would have been strengthened. And the third strategy was, I would say, pro-governmental. So when Slovaks abandoned their political demands and uh, asked only for, politic, uh, for linguistic rights within, within Kingdom of Hungary. But uh, to conclude this uh, on this short introduction into Slovak history, I would say that uh, that uh, all Slovak uh, politicians or Slo- the whole Slovak elite was loyal to to the monarchy, and they they didn't seek, they didn't ask for independence. They only asked for autonomy within the uh, within the within the monarchy. Thank you, thank you. Um... So that that's kind of a, an introduction to to this area of history. So let's talk more specifically about Stefanik and and where he kind of comes into this story before and then during the First World War. Yes, Stefanik is is a little bit in particular situation because he's seen as the Slovak national hero was as a, a Slovak national hero. He didn't live or or all whole his active life. He lived uh, outside of Slovakia, so that's <laughs> that's a little bit uh, as I said, particular. But he was born in Slovakia or Upper, Upper Hungary in the family of a Protestant priest. Then he moved uh, to study astronomy in Prague. When Stefanik was 24, in 1904, he left for France, where he wanted to work as an astronomer. His great protector was Jules Janssen, a famous French astrophysician, who was the director of the Madon Observatory. Madon is a suburb of uh, is a suburb of Paris, and Stefanik's main focus was to observe solar eclipses. He traveled. Uh, he traveled to Spain. He traveled to Turkestan in Central Asia, and he climbed six times Mont Blanc. In order to uh, to observe there uh, some astronomical phenomena, phenomena, no, uh, because Jules Janssen uh, constructed an observatory on the top of this highest European uh, European uh, mountain. Like his uh, his job in uh, Madon Observatory was not a real job; it was rather some kind of internship. So he didn't really get paid for it. Then uh, he worked one season as a deputy director of uh, Mont Blanc Observatory Society, Observatory Society. But then he took his own decision, his his big decision that he is going to build his own observatory, either in North Africa, Africa, either in Tahiti. So then first he went to North Africa, and but he didn't found the appropriate place for the construction of his observatory. And then he went to uh, to Tahiti, where, of course, it was <laughs> it still is a very interesting, very beautiful island. And but uh, he also found there 
appropriate place uh, for his for his observatory. But he understood very quickly that the range of activities of his observatory should be broader because uh, it was not easy to find money for for founding of the, for for financing of his of his observatory. So he wanted to build there a wireless telegraphy station or radio telegraphy station and join these two services with observatory and wireless telegraphy station. Then, uh, well, he left. Uh, well, he, he built there he, this observatory, and that uh, cost two hundred fifty thousand francs. It was uh, it was pretty expensive, mainly if we if we take into consideration that he left uh, for France uh, uh, when he was uh, when he didn't have any financial uh, um, resources, and he almost didn't speak any French. So then he he went to Island Wauwau and to Brazil in order to to observe uh, the solar eclipses. But his most important mission before the Great War was to Ecuador. uh, Because as I said already, he wanted to create wireless telegraphy station at Tahiti. But the problem was that French uh, or France didn't have connection with uh, with its colonies. So he didn't want to limit only only to this one station, but he wanted to create worldwide network of uh, of wireless telegraphy. So he went to Ecuador, and he wa- he wanted to uh, to build a station on the on the uh, on the Galapagos archi- archipelago in order to enable a connection between Martinique and Tahiti. I mean, this is uh, this is. Uh, uh mission in Ecuador was very successful from, from the point of view of wireless telegraphy. It had a lot of dimensions, ge- geopolitical, uh, cultural, scientific, and so on. But uh, uh, then he, he came back to France and he, he got the, the knight, uh, the cross of knight of Légion d'honneur, very high French, uh, uh, French uh, decoration. Uh, I want. I would like to re, uh, to say that f- since uh, 1912, he was French citizen, and uh, this uh, this mission is in Ecuador happened in uh, 1913. Then his last uh, pre-war mission was to Morocco, where, where he wanted to create another station of his worldwide network of wireless telegraphy. So as we can see, this was someone who moved a lot all around the world. And uh, he was very—he was someone who had a lot of uh, personal interests in almost everything. So from all all his journeys, he took to his uh, he bring to his uh, small apartment in Paris, or ethnographical objects, uh, weapons, uh, carpets, clothes, and so on and so on. And when people who visited his uh, his apartment in Paris in Paris, they said that. Was not an apartment; it was rather a small museum. I mean, one of the most uh, well, no, most uh, interesting thing that he found was Gauguin's woodcrafts in uh, some in one remote island in French Polynesia, and uh, where this where Paul Gauguin, the famous French artist, spent the last year of his uh, of his life. He was also an artist. He took a lot of photographs all around the world, thanks to Thanks to them, we can uh, we can see how it was uh, how it was traveling all around the world. He was an inventor. He 
he had two patents in French uh, French uh, Institute for National for Personal Property. Right? I don't know exactly now how to how to translate it. And when the war broke up, he was uh, as he was French citizen. He was drafted into infantry, but he was never satisfied with the common with common uh, destiny or something like this. So through his uh, through his wide uh, networks among French uh, French politi- politicians, he arranged that he was uh, affected to to French military aviation. And uh, well, he he of course he he, fo- he was uh, flying mainly on Western Front, and uh, he wanted to uh, to benefit from his knowledge of astronomer. And so he established mini military weather forecast on one part of uh, of Western Front. This uh, this Western Front, this part of Western Front was under the command of General General Foch, then who will later become become Mar- Marshal Foch. And uh, as as we could see, I mean, in in his in his uh, project about this worldwide uh, network of wireless telegraphy, he was never satisfied with local solution. So he wanted to create inter-allied military weather forecast. He founded uh, a military weather forecast in the Romanian army, and he was in touch with Russia, Russia's Greeks, and Italians' military weather forecast. But uh, then he, uh, we don't know how this how this project of inter-allied military weather forecast ended because uh, uh, Stefanik was more interested in in other uh, in other uh, domains. And uh, so, as we can we can see from this, from what I said, it was someone who was very interesting. So when he came to those French and Italian saloons, he raised uh, great interest immediately. A lot of women fell in love with him. He was uh, he was seducer. He was romantical seducer. He was political seducer. He really liked he really liked uh, the thing that uh, that pe- that uh, women loved him and. Uh, he started to build his own legend already during his life. Besides that, he was a great storyteller. And uh, like, uh, for example, as I said already, he found, he discovered Gauguin's uh, woodcrafts. But he said that he personally met Paul Gauguin, a great French artist, who gave him these, those woodcrafts. But uh, Paul Gauguin died in, died in 1903, at the time when Stefanik was studying in, uh, in Prague. And or another story that he was telling in the French and Italian salons was that uh, uh, once he was charged uh, to by obs- to observe a solar eclipse in one remote island in French Polynesia, and when he when he uh, came to this island, he he called the local the local the chief of the local tribe and he told him. My friend, we have big problem. We have big problem. Tomorrow, the sun is gonna disappear. But no worries. The French government is aware of its that it should protect its citizens. So the French government sent me in order to make reappear the sun. And of course, Stefani was astronomer. He knew that the next day the the, the solar eclipse will uh, will took place at let's say two o'clock afternoon and. That that's, that really happened, and this uh, chief of local tribe was amazed by this uh, by this magician who could uh, was able to to control uh, sun and who was able to 
to make that the sun reappear or first disappear and then reappear. But uh, Stefanik was telling this kind of stories in uh, in French uh, among French and Italian high society, but everybody understood that he was exaggerating. But in the same time, everybody understood that uh, behind this exaggeration, it was a lot of uh, experience that he really went to this island to to uh, to observe the solar eclipse. Everybody understood that, uh, that this exaggeration was just part of his uh, of his strategy how to how to convince people and to to get them on uh, on his side. The last reason, or that I will mention here, how Stefanik impressed people that he became from simple soldier he became general within three and a half years and it was not for military reason because he although he thought he fought and uh, on western front and then a little bit on italian front but it was mainly for diplomatic reasons because he was uh, was fighting for this czechoslovak uh, uh, czechoslovak cause and this czechoslovak cause was very uh, convenient for france so french military uh, for so french uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs were constantly asking the Ministry of War to promote Stefanik in high ranks, and he, he ended up as general in summer 1918. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That sounds like quite a life to live, um, <laughs> moving all over the world and, and doing all those amazing things. So let's move forward a little bit. So the one thing you didn't talk a lot about until the very end there was Slovakia and how Stefanik kind of relates to the foundation of Czechoslovakia. So, so how does he get involved with that and what role does he play after the war? Okay. Yes, that's that's a very important <laughs> that's a very important uh, uh, matter. So let's let's start with uh, with this. Well, of course, with at the beginning of the war, I mean, no one imagined, or 
among uh, entente politicians and diplomats. No one, no one imagined the dissolution of Austria-Hungary. It was a state uh, uh, that uh, existed for a very long time. Uh, it had its uh, special role within this uh, concert of uh, great of powers or concert of great powers in in Europe and for balance of power. So, uh, so it was, uh, and when when this Czechoslovak foreign movement came with this idea of dismantling uh, Austro-Hungary, it was very radical. It was a very radical project, as I said already. In Austria-Hungary, there were Slovaks and Czechs lived. Uh, no one asked for for an independence. They everybody asked for an autonomy. So and they had to they had to come with some also with some ideology ideological support. It was this uh, idea of self determination of people, and they wanted to destroy or dismember Austria-Hungary and create so-called new Europe. Of course, for the for the Czechoslovak foreign movement. The main aim was the establishment of Czechoslovakia. But in the same time, they understood that the main uh, enemy of Antant was Germany. So they, they were arguing that uh, Austria-Hungary just uh, became a German tool for its expansion towards East, and Austria-Hungary should be replaced by the chain of state that will, uh, that will make a barrier for this... Uh, for this um, German expansion towards east, and this chain of states was, of course, north uh, in North Poland, then in the middle Czechoslovakia, then the, uh, Romania, and South Yugoslavia. So, at the head of this Czechoslovak foreign movement, that was led by its leading body, Czechoslovak National Council, and with its, pres- with its president Tomasz Garik Masaryk, f- future uh, first president of Czechoslovakia. Its vice president Milan Rastislav Stefanik. There was another vice president Josef Durich, but he then it's it's really compl- it's, it's a little bit complicated. Then he was uh, uh, they uh, 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 they decided uh, to to exclude him from this uh, from this Czechoslovak National Council, and the general secretary of this uh, Czechoslovak National Council Edvard Beneš, Edvard Beneš, the second president of Czechoslovakia. So and of course they started to uh, they started great propaganda work uh, because um, of course no one knew at the time what was Czechoslovakia no one knew uh, or uh, very little people uh, very uh, few people uh, in west in west uh, understood uh, geopolitical so or the internal situation uh, of Austria-Hungary and but they they quickly understood that this propaganda this propaganda act, uh, work is very important, but they they needed something uh, more concrete. So they decided to create Czechoslovak army abroad, so-called Czechoslovak legions, and they wanted to base them in France because of course in France there was Western Front and it was the center of the whole world. Everybody was looking at the Western Front from. That's that it was also important from propaganda point of view. And uh, the problem was that uh, in France there were no no prisoners of war of Czech and Slovak origin, or there was not a or big Czech or or and Slovak uh, colony living there. So and those were because uh, this uh, this this uh, Czechoslovak army abroad was recruited mainly, or they recruited. Uh, the volunteers for this army, mainly among prisoners of war, 
POW of Czech and Slovak origin and among uh, Czech and Slovak colonies abroad. So Stefanik, as he traveled before the war, <laughs> he continued to travel also during the war. He went to Serbia and to Italy, to Russia, Romania, then back to Russia, to the United States, Italy, and back to France, Japan, 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 and Russia again. So we can see that he moved, uh, that he moved a lot. And from uh, the most of those countries, he, he sent to France those Czech, Czechoslovak volunteers. For example, when uh, mainly in the United States, there was around one and a half million of Czechs and Slovaks. So he he went there and or he went there and he recruited there or he organized the, the committee that recruited the volunteers. And uh, well, uh, thanks to the presidential degree in December 1917, the creation of Czechoslovak legions was uh, allowed, and around ten thousand uh, Czechoslovak soldiers fought at Western fought and Western at Western Front in the summer. 1918. The situation was a little bit more complicated in Italy because uh, Italy had the same territorial demands on Adriatic coast as Yugoslav as the Yugoslav movement, and so from general point of view, Rome saw with great mistrust uh, the so-called movement of oppressed nationalities of Austria-Hungary. It means Czechoslovak movement, Yugoslav movement, Polish movement, and Romanian movement. That's why uh, Stefanik's position in this country was was very complicated. When he came there uh, to to negotiate with the uh, Italian government uh, in uh, February 1918, first he wanted he just wanted to transfer those volunteers from Italy to France because they wanted to create the uh, Czechoslovak legions mainly in France. But then after very difficult uh, after very difficult negotiation, he got a green light to establish Czechoslovak legions in uh, Italy. It was, uh, uh, we should say that it was a great success because, for example, Polish and Romanian legions were allowed to, to be established uh, in Italy only in uh, August 1918, so just uh, two or three months before, before the end of the war, while Stefanik achieved, in, in, it, achieved it in April. Uh, of course, it was also great success from from uh, um, propaganda point of view. He arranged handing over of the military battle flag for Czechoslovak legions on 24 May 1918. It was exactly the third anniversary of the of Italians of the entry of Italy into into the Great War. And uh, in summer 1918, around 20,000 Czechoslovak soldiers fought on on Italian front and. Uh, the most important battle was uh, battle of, uh, on uh, Dos Alto. This, this was one of the uh, biggest tradition in uh, of Czechoslovak army in interwar period. And uh, when situation when situation in Italy was complicated, the situation in Russia was even more complicated because uh, uh, there was. Uh, there was, uh, of course, uh, the, the, no, there was a Czech minority living there who organized a special uh, first, uh, first special military unit, Česká družina, Czech unit, and then it slowly changed to brigade. But the, but the Russian government didn't want it to allow, didn't want to allow 
recruitment, massive recruitment, recruitment among prisoners of war. But this changed uh, after the Battle of Zboro uh, in, in summer 1917, when, where this Czechoslovak brigade had great success uh, during the Bru- during Brusilov offensive. Uh, this uh, Czechoslovak legions in uh, in uh, Russia started to grow. There was uh, by the end of uh, uh, by the end of uh, 1918 it was around 40,000 of them. But the problem was that uh, Bolshevik came to power after Bolshevik Revolution, and they wanted to sign a peace with Central Powers. So what happened? Uh, what happened uh, later? On a, so very famous Breslitos piece, and uh, the tensions between Czechoslovak legions and Bolsheviks started to grow, and uh, Czechoslovak legions were the strongest military power in Russia. And we are more or less in summer 1918, and all those those military success uh, in France, in Italy, and mainly in Russia, because because Antant didn't have... uh, didn't have other, uh, didn't have enough soldiers, or didn't have enough uh, tool how to influence uh, internal political, internal uh, situation in Russia. So, thanks to those uh, to those Czechoslovak legions, uh, Czechoslovak National Council started to be recognized by by military uh, by by Entente, or by the by the great power of of Entente. Czechoslovakia became reality in uh, on 28 October 1918. So and that's uh, that uh, when Stefanik came to to Russia already as a Czechoslovak minister of war. When he left Europe it was in uh, in uh, in uh, August 1918. The war was still uh, still uh, raging in Europe, but when he came to uh, uh, to Siberia to Russia the war was already over. So when those Czechoslovak soldiers, they didn't understand why should we fight here against some Bolsheviks. Uh, we want to go home because the war is over. Czechoslovakia was created and so on. The, the matters uh, became even more complicated with the coup d'etat of, uh, uh, of Alexander Kolchak and the Russian hero of the Great War. Because Kolchak was officially ally of Antant, but uh, Kolchak was a very conservative, pro-monarchical politician, while Czechoslovak soldiers were were more left-wing oriented. So when Stefanik Stefanik argued that if we want want, uh, uh, um, appropriate frontiers for Czechoslovakia, we should fight in line with Antant foreign politics, and uh, he he was uh, he was explaining to the soldiers that at the peace Paris conference at the Paris peace conference their fights are um, closely observed by all politicians. So that's why that's how that's how they can influence also the the um, the future of uh, of Czechoslovakia. So at the beginning he he convinced them to continue the fight. But after he after he visited all the all the units, or not all, but uh, some of the units on the front, he understood that the withdrawal of the of the Czechoslovak legions were legions uh, was necessary, and so he ordered the withdrawal, and or he ordered the retreat, and he left for for Europe. 
When, uh, when he came, came to Europe, there was another great problem in Czechoslovakia, where, was, where were two uh, military missions, one French military mission, another Italian military missions, mission, and those two missions were competing for influence in Czechoslovakia. Stefanik was French citizen, but in the same time, his, uh, his fiancé was, uh, was Italian, uh, Italian Marquise Giuliana Benzoni. He had great, uh, great contacts and great friends in, uh, among, Italian, uh, among Italian political elite. So he was a little bit in, uh, in complicated situation, but he arranged the compromise between those two missions, between French and Italian government. That was something that, uh, uh, that uh, no other Czechoslovak politicians, politician was able to, to do. But he died soon after, on 4 May 1919, while returning, while returning to his so-called liberate, uh, liberated homeland in an airplane crash near, uh, near today's Bratislava. It's kind of unfortunate that, that that happened at that time. Like He kind of achieved this big goal and was not able to enjoy it at all. Yes, but... Uh, maybe uh, maybe I will argue that it was also a blessing because <laughs> I will maybe I will maybe um, because for example his death was tragic his death was romantic because he died when he was thirty eight and uh, it was seen as as his ultimate sacrifice for his uh, for his nation and uh, uh, so he wanted to come home. Uh, by plane, because it was uh, in order to uh, to impress his uh, Slovaks. So, uh, so this this romantic nature, I think, plays an important important role. For example, also there were uh, I mean, the circumstances of his death were not uh, um, enough investigated at the time. So until now, there is a lot of conspiracy theories going on how Stefanik died. And that's why he's he's still discussed in uh, in Slovak public space and he's symboli- symbolically present in in uh, in Slovak in in well, in Slovak political or also uh, general uh, discourse. And also, I think this his premature death, uh, well, thanks to his premature death, his legacy could be claimed by different political parties. Because as he died in 1918, he was not involved in very often very radical political controversies uh, in, in interwar Czechoslovakia. That's like, thanks to this lack of, of, his, of his political uh, standpoints or, or knowledge of his uh, lack of knowledge of, about his political standpoints. He, he became something like plastic hero, and all political parties could claim his legacy except for communists. Uh, but uh, I mean, until now, if you take uh, Slovak liberals and Slovak uh, far far right uh, far right uh, politicians, all of them are claiming Stefanik like Stefanik's legacy. So yeah, so his death, while tragic, also kind of set him up in this position, yeah. uh, being untarnished by any political actions after yes. after the nation was founded. Definitely, I, I think so. <laughs> You talk a little bit about how his legacy has continued on in various ways. So could could you just elaborate more kind of on what his legacy is within uh, Slovakia? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think it's it's a very interesting question 
because since uh, since interwar period, as he was one of the founding father of Czechoslovakia, his there was a massive construction of his cult. I mean, there was st- uh, his statues were built around uh, Slovakia. Books published about him. Books were published about him. The streets bore bear his names. His memorial was constructed, and so and so on and so on. So, in interwar period, that's understandable. He was presented as a as a hero, as a Czechoslovak hero. But there was still this kind of Slovak question, as we had as we had Slovak question within uh, Kingdom of Hungary. We had Slovak question within Czechoslovakia because. One part of Slovak population wanted autonomy within uh, within Czechoslovakia. In another another part of Slovak uh, Slovak population wanted uh, uh, wanted called centralized Czechoslovak states. And uh, in the so in the same time, uh, by the first part of uh, of Slovak population, Stefanik was presented as Slovak as the most important Slovak. And by the second part of of this uh, Slovak population, but also by by Czechs, he was presented as Czechoslovak. In order to to give to to the to to the citizens of Czechoslovakia the the idol that they should uh, they should identify with, and during the during the World War II, Slovakia became independent or became, it became rather German satellite, and uh, of course Stefanik was presented as a as a Slovak hero because uh, uh, this uh, Slovak Slovak Republic had to. Negatively identified towards uh, towards its Czechoslovak past, and some politicians said that if Stefanik lived, he would he became Slovak Hitler. But uh, that was that was just a use misusing of his uh, of his uh, of his legacy. Only communists communists tried to destroy his legacy. I mean, his statues were uh, were erased. He was not mentioned in textbooks. The the names that bore his name. Were renamed, and uh, from general point of view, communists uh, criticized everything, uh, uh, everything that was linked to so-called bourgeois Czechoslovak Czechoslovak Republic, interwar Czechoslovak Republic. What's more, Stefanik was uh, uh, was involved in anti-Bolshevik fight of uh, of Czechoslovak legions uh, in Russian civil war. It was, of course, something that they could not. Uh, Pardon him, and from general point of view, he was uh, he was presented as cosmopolite and as, as, as an and as French imperialist agent. There was a there was short uh, short period of uh, political detent uh, in uh, so called uh, Prague Spring or Czechoslovak Spring in 1968, where people could could uh, uh, speak a little bit more freely about Stefanik. But uh, from general point of view, communists tried to destroy his his cult his memory but i think it only strengthened his uh, his uh, his popularity because he got uh, he got an aura of uh, of hero who was denounced by by impopular regi- political regime and so after after the fall of communism in 1989 he retook his prominent place in 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 so-called slovak pantheon pantheon the statues that were that were erased were re-erected. <laughs> the names were rena- renamed. So now, in in every Slovak uh, uh, town, you have uh, you have uh, Stefanik Street. A lot of uh, a lot of books were published about him, and uh, 
as there were as after the the end of uh, communism the discussion again the discussions again about whether Slovaks should become independent or whether they should uh, they should be they should continue to be part of Czechoslovakia uh, emerged those two images of Stefanik the Slovak and Czechoslovak reemerged and uh, of course they were used uh, in order to support that or that uh, political project now today he is uh, often presented as european or cosmopolite but this time it's it's something that is seen that seen is as popular as as positive uh, excuse me and uh, of course because the of the entry of the slovakia into european union is uh, this is uh, this part of his identity is it's very it's very interesting and i i think that uh, that stefanik or the the use and use and misuse of Stefanik's legacy uh, reflects the challenges of the creation of Slovak identity that had all that had always um, during the mainly during the 20th century struggle to find whether they want to their whether Slovaks want to create their own nation and be independent uh, nation or state uh, together together with uh, with Czechs and uh, well this last. Uh, uh, last remark when uh, in 1919 uh, there was a public poll uh, about uh, who who is the greatest the greatest personality of Slovak history Stefanik won by far because he uh, he got the the half of uh, of all votes from from the from the person from personalities that uh, that were placed in top 10 so that's uh, of course there is we can discuss about it for a long time why why it was like this but uh, it still shows that he is very popular uh, in Slovakia. So I often ask people this question of like what prompted you to write this book? Like what was kind of basically why did you write this book uh, about this person? Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea and it's a there is a funny story <laughs> behind it. When I was studying at in, I think it, I was in fourth grade uh, in 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 Europe. We had or in Slovakia we had a little bit different system from American one. So I I was I was already studying history and French language, and one of my professor came and asked me, "Oh, Michal, there is an opportunity to go to study um, Stefanik to Paris. Would you be interested and to Sorbonne?" I said, oh, of course, if someone is offering you to go to study <laughs> Sorbonne, you, you you will not refuse it. But then I then I learned how it happened because there was one uh, one Slovak professor, um, um, specialist on, tra- on Slovak theater, who was a visiting professor in in France, and he was teasing uh, he was teasing uh, his his colleagues at the department of of contemporary Central European history because the professor. Of this of this department, Professor Marais, he was writing the biography of Benesh. His assistant, uh, Mr. Subigu, he was writing the biography of Masaryk, and he was teasing them. And if you if people know Czech and Slovaks, we are teasing each other all the time, and uh, it's like Canadians and Americans. <laughs> and so, and he was he was asking them, but come on, man, you are writing biography of Benesh, you are writing biography of. Uh, of Masaryk, but Stefanik was French citizen, and you should write a biography of, of Stefanik. And he told them, "Okay, so if you want, uh, if you want someone to write Stefanik's biography, you should send someone from Slovakia." 
and it happened to be me by, by accident because <laughs> during my studies I wanted to focus more on 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 medieval period, but it was just like like this, and I was. When when there is an interesting opportunity, I never say no. So <laughs> so I continued and I I wrote my my PhD uh, dissertation on Stefanik and then it was uh, it was published in French, in Slovak, and in English. Well, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and, and talking about your book and and about Stefanik in general. It's been a, a really fascinating conversation. Great, thank I mean, th- thank you, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for allowing me uh, to being here and it was it was really great <laughs> great experience and so just uh, just a small reminder and the, the book name is uh, Milan Rastislav Stefanik the Slovak national hero and co-founder of Czechoslovakia it was it was published by Rutledge in 2021 so last year and for those listening i've put a link to the book in the show notes that you can check out